0: What's up, sports fans? My name is Lucas Weiss, host of the We Sports Chronicles podcast. Our next guest is Emma Bachelary. She is a staff writer at Sports Illustrated covering baseball. In this episode, I chat with Emma about the fallout from the 2020 World Series, reporting on that event virtually, covering baseball amidst a global pandemic, her recent feature on San Diego Padres rookie sensation Fernando Tatis Jr., which appeared the Sports Illustrated magazine. And we also dive into her career and her various stops along the way, as well as her advice for young journalists looking to break into the industry. The Wii Sports Chronicles podcast is available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So make sure to like, rate, watch, and subscribe to all three of those channels. Now let's get to episode 74 with Emma Bachelary on the Wii Sports Chronicles podcast. All right. As I said off the top, I'm pleased to be joined by Emma Batchelary. She's a staff writer at Sports Illustrated, mostly specializing in baseball. And she's glad enough to join us the morning after the 2020 World Series here on the Sports Chronicles podcast. Emma, welcome. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Well, Crazy World Series, of course, for, for my listeners, the Los Angeles Dodgers, ending a 32-year drought, defeating the Tampa Bay Rays in six games. In a normal year, Mo, we talk about Kevin Cash's managerial decisions, but 2020 is not normal, and uh, that managerial decision gets usurped by Justin Turner's uh, news last night of testing positive for, for COVID-19 and then going of the field, so... Just from, from your perspective, just how wild was just last night and just covering not from your home, I'm assuming?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I am covering this year from home. We had some changes with our, our normal coverage due to obviously COVID. So while I'd been there for the World Series the past years, um, for this year I was doing it from home, uh, which meant that I just heard this announced on television just like anyone else, um, you know, shortly after that final out. That's the reason that Justin Turner had been pulled after the seventh inning was because he had a a positive COVID test, which is obviously uh, really shocking to then see him, you know, not long after they announced that to see him celebrating on the field with his teammates, kissing his wife, you know, hugging his teammates, taking pictures without a mask, you know, passing the trophy around. Um, And obviously there's been some reporting around the timeline, trying to suss out just who knew what, when, and, status of, um, you know, the test that he took yesterday and the day before. But yeah, I I think just uh, really jarring. It's certainly not a good look for baseball, you know, after having the majority of the end of the season, the playoffs passed without serious incident around COVID after the earlier struggles they had with the outbreaks around the Marlins and the Cardinals. You know, it seemed like they'd finally been able to get all of this on track. They had this neutral site for the World Series, neutral sites throughout the playoffs. And um, the fact that the this was still allowed to happen, and to become the main story the day after the World Series is, you know, just really n- not great for MLB.
0: Well, it, you're absolutely right, and, and when you think of how this this year began, and just the you know the tense negotiations between the MLB and MLBPA, which of course you know painted them in a, in, a, in a bit of a negative light, you know, leading up to the start of the season, as you mentioned. the The COVID-19 positive tests from the Marlins and the Cardinals at the start of the season and then ending it last night. And I can't just help but think, Emma, how it it sort of underscores the importance of like you look at the NHL and NBA, they of course were in a bubble situation and zero positive tests. And I just think it's a reminder once again just how complicated playing sports is in this COVID-19 pandemic and how... The virus has no borders, it has no boundaries, and we see how it it could possibly have created a real nightmare for MLB if this series ended up going to Game 7.
1: Yeah, and I actually, I think that's one of the biggest questions that needs to be asked (laughs) right now, and one that I haven't seen a good answer from MLB (laughs) on, is what was the plan for a Game 7 if the Rays had forced one? Um, Just because I can't imagine that you would be able to, to do any form of contact tracing and not determined that a a fairly significant chunk of the Dodgers had had close contact with Turner, if not all of the Dodgers, let alone, you know, the managerial staff, support staff, all of that. Um, And as we saw with past outbreaks in baseball, if you're not taking that very seriously and isolating people right away, it can spread through a clubhouse so quickly. Um, And especially in the bubble environment they were in, which I do think bubble is, Almost a misnomer because they tried to market it as a bubble, but based on the setup they had, I mean, you mean, had fans in the stands. <laughs> um, it wasn't as much of a bubble as we saw the term used for basketball and hockey. Um, but in that environment, you know, players they were doing lots of socializing back at the hotel, which mm-hmm. you know was within their rights. They were there mm-hmm. for more than a month. They were told it was safe. They would hang out together in their rooms around the grounds of the place they were at. I can't imagine with that situation that you wouldn't have had uh several Dodgers I mean in a place to test positive certainly at least in a place to get extra testing and need to be isolated right away so I don't see how you could hold a game 7 um you know on what would have been today as scheduled and that's just a, a huge question along with all of the other ones for MLB right now with the bigger theme of how could this happen <laughs> is what were you going to do if it didn't work
0: out the way it did? And I guess it may be too early to know Emma, but do you think that we'll ever know whether other players on the field or even, you know, personnel on the team, families would have tested positive as a result of Justin Turner being tested positive for COVID? Yeah. I mean, as of,
1: right now on wednesday they said they don't know how long the mm. entire dodgers traveling party is going to remain in texas um with extra testing seeing who needs to potentially be isolated and i imagine you know there should be some results coming out of that uh, you know hopefully everyone is safe and everyone is healthy mm. and those are you know negative tests but i, I would imagine uh, and certainly this isn't news that MLB year that the Dodgers want to, have to share <laughs> and have reported. But I imagine we are going to hear something in the coming days about the status of, of all of those
0: individuals. So you mentioned how you're covering this World Series at home. You've you've covered the World Series live numerous times. I'm just curious, Emma, how you felt your coverage had sort of changed this year and, and how it may have just been affected by not being there live in person if it did affect your ability to report on this event
1: yeah so i think for the season as a whole and not just Mm -hmm. the playoffs there were kind of two factors here um one was that i had a reason to to look into things i had never looked into before because really with the way that the the virus took hold and it shaped the season it affected everyone's Mm -hmm. job. So I was able to talk to people like the the traveling secretary, the stadium scoreboard operators, people who make the schedule, like all of those people who normally, you know, in a regular season have cool jobs, but not necessarily jobs that are like of serious interest to baseball fans and to to writers like myself. Those were all super interesting. Like Mm -hmm. how do you schedule a team's travel right now? How are you making this fake crowd noise? Uh, What did making the schedule on the fly, you know, after having to scrap the entire original thing, what did that look like? All of those questions were super interesting. Um, And having a chance to just explore those, to talk to people like that who normally aren't in the spotlight, um, to talk to players' families. I did one story I loved where I I talked to just wives of players in different situations who chose, you know, either to stay together or to live separately or not to play at all this season. That was really interesting. And I'm really grateful I had a chance to do that. Um, So in that sense, I think it was kind of, um i guess enhanced i would say Mm -hmm. just like there were so many opportunities for a a sort of coverage that you know i never gotten to do before that i don't think fans really had a chance to read before and just because this affected everyone whose lives are touched by baseball um you know working in the industry with family in the industry there were so many more stories to tell and um you know that was really interesting and something i I guess i would say i was grateful for um but the flip Side of that when it comes to covering the actual games um that was certainly a, a huge challenge um i did some reporting in stadiums this year some regular season games i'm, I'm based in dc so the mm-hmm. nationals were here I, I actually covered the blue jays first home game oh, right um, on here in dc <laughs> yeah um but it, it's just so difficult when you're used to being able to you know talk to to any player on the team to go up in the clubhouse to talk to, you know, the backup catcher or, you know, a guy in the bullpen who's not used very much. Like a lot of times players like that who aren't necessarily made available by the public relations staff when it's just a Zoom press conference, those guys like that, that you can stop in the clubhouse that don't necessarily have a lot of people talking to them are some of the most interesting ones to talk to. I found, you know, you're able to kind of build relationships like that to, kind of just have a rapport with certain guys and see them day in and day out and that's really important and a really cool way to to get story ideas and to feel like you know what's going on and you know with what you're trying to write about um and then apart from that even like the stars the guys who do end up being put in zoom press conferences by the pr staff when you're able to see them face to face and talk and they see you every day like that also builds a a relationship um, and you know you're able to do better work there and so not have any of that, I, it is a lot harder to report, to, to find good stories, to feel like you have, you know, a, a decent relationship with the people that you're covering. Um, that's m- much harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am curious to see what we get for, for next season because, um, you know, unfortunately it doesn't look like everything is going to be completely back to normal by March. Um, although, like, fingers crossed, I guess we'll see you know what the status of the things is um but it is certainly more challenging way to report on baseball though certainly not um you know an impossible one but I think I, I still read a lot of good stories by colleagues this year you know I still was able to do some stuff I enjoyed so it's you know it's still certainly workable I don't want to make it sound like I'm complaining to you, no. but it's definitely a, a different challenge
0: no absolutely and I think that was a really candid answer and I think a lot of journalists can definitely relate to that and and I think you mentioned about relationships. I think relate prior relationships are just so important, especially on the Zoom press conferences where all the other reporters are there. It's not like you can take a player or a manager and one on one to get a quote. Like you have to really think outside the box. I think the best journalists this year have done that. I mean you mentioned the story some of the stories that you wrote that we're outside the box looking at someone how to score a game, putting in the fake crowd noise. And I found that I really enjoyed those stories. Like as much as I enjoy the X's and O's stories about strategy and and within the game, I think those sort of stories that you may not expect an outlet to to produce and, and you did, I just think really added a lot of much needed perspective in a year that was just, I I know the word unprecedented is thrown around so much but it really was and I think that those stories certainly resonated with baseball fans just looking for an outlet to read about the sport in a completely different way
1: yeah well thank you I appreciate (laughs) that but yeah I I agree like when I'm thinking of back on this season and five years ten years past that you know I, I feel like what's interesting and what made this year different and isn't looking at like, okay, how exactly did the Phillies' bullpen fall apart? It was like, how exactly were they playing in empty stadiums and trying to replicate this environment that they couldn't possibly, you know, do perfectly? All of those questions about what made this season so different, um, that's so interesting, and there's just so much to dig into there. And obviously, there was a lot of, you know, baseball to, to watch and write about too, but the the circumstances around it, I just think um, were, I mean, Fascinating, a lot of people worked really hard t- to try to get it to be what it was. Um obviously not everything worked out perfectly. <laughs> um but yeah, it just uh as you said, tired of using the word unprecedented, but there really aren't that many other ways to describe what we saw this year.
0: No, absolutely. I um I subscribe to Sports Illustrated magazine and I received this magazine in the mail which consists of your uh Fernando Tatis feature. I know I know it's a little weird, me magazine wow in twenty twenty, but uh I'm like that. I still subscribe to the magazine. And thank you. (laughs) Yeah, no worries. And I mean, Tatisa obviously was one of the major storylines of 2020, definitely captured a lot of headlines. In that feature, I mean, how do you start and just like approach from sort of the beginning, you know, pitching that idea to an editor and then getting that piece into the magazine form? Yeah.
1: So, uh, this is an interesting one on the uh, the question of how do you do it in COVID times, for, mm-hmm. you know, regularly. Because in a, a regular season, I would have just gone to San Diego, spent probably a week with the Padres, talked to a bunch of his teammates, um, you know, not just the manager, but people up and down the coaching staff, like kind of just all the stuff you can get by shadowing them for even just one series, three or four days, um, and then sit down with him. But for this one, you know, obviously you can't do that. My editors. Um asked if I wanted to, to go to San Diego, but his agent had made it clear I, I couldn't sit down with him face to face, which was, you know, totally mm-hmm. fine. And I understand for COVID safety, mm-hmm. of course. So I was like, buy me to San Diego for what? To like to zoom him from my hotel room. Like <laughs> I didn't think I would ever uh, turn down a work comp trip to San Diego, but this one was like it's not gonna help the story. <laughs> um so I just did all of that recording from home. Um and yeah, because you're not able to get that kind of access, um It was just kind of a matter of, I I think with a player like Tatis, what made me want to pitch this story in the beginning is he's so dynamic and electric to watch. Like there's so much that you get from just the act of watching him, of how you describe him. Um, And I mean, the the stuff he was doing at that point in the season really looked like it was kind of historic for someone as young as he is. And so that kind of made it easier to do without a, a ton of, he has on reporting, like, I had basically just pitched it as, you know, this has been such a grueling, weird season, like, for I think a lot of people, the most fun, interesting, bright spot has been the play of Tatis, mm-hmm. so I just want to do whatever I can with him. Um, and so that ended up with with the reporting, I was able to get done just, you know, talking to him, talking to his manager, general manager, um, his dad, um, who's down in the Dominican where he grew up. Um, and yeah, just doing all of that over phone or over Zoom um, and trying to get a, a sense of who he is and you know what he's done this year and why it's been so special in the context of this year, and then trying to put it together with you know everything we can actually see from him on the field. So definitely different from what I would um, have normally done within a regular season with that, where I probably would have just gone to San Diego, probably would have had quotes from a lot more people in there, would have had access to a lot more. Um, i you know i think this year has just been about adjusting and figuring out how to uh you know adapt to what's in front of us and so still able to do stuff over phone over zoom um you know even when you can't go and sit down face to face anymore
0: of those people that you mentioned and and given these adjusted times in, in terms of interviewing who would you say was the most challenging to interview given this context of phone interviews or zoom um
1: that's a good question. Hmm. I think I would have really loved to be able to sit down with his dad, Fernando Mm -hmm. Taty's senior face to face. um, Just because he obviously has such an interesting perspective on him, not just as a a baseball player, but as a father. But on the flip side, you know, I've talked to players parents before. And this is also (laughs) one that has a really interesting perspective on his baseball abilities, Mm -hmm. because he played for so long. Um, and that's kind of just unique to have uh, someone who who knows their child as a, a parent as a person and also like very intimately as a baseball player and is able to evaluate that you know uh the kind of the same way i mean exactly the same way a manager was his father has managed in the dominican before um in winter ball so that i think I mean, we had a good conversation over the phone and i enjoyed talking to him he, he's you know a, certainly a, a friendly guy and a, a great interview but that's one where i think where there's so much to dig into and especially kind of that personal background of you know it being his son i think that's the kind of thing where sitting down face to face is is really hard to replicate um without you know being able to actually sit down with someone and just talk for a little bit
0: one yeah. of the other things I liked about the piece as well was just sort of integrating narrative with also some of his baseball abilities. I know that you mentioned some, uh, you know, advanced stats like his strikeout rate and things like that, that, you know, the stat cast nerds like myself would really enjoy. But do you, is that what you try to do, Emma, in a lot of your baseball pieces is just try to humanize the statistics? Because I find sometimes that, you know, you you could get bombarded with stats and and you don't get the context around them. And I thought in that piece, you did a really good job of, you know, humanizing and putting into context what, you know, Tatis is doing based on some of the advanced metrics.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. And that's kind of, I think, a perfect way of describing what I'm trying to do is Hmm. is humanizing those stats because uh, that was actually one of the big challenges for me when I first came for SI. Like, I, I hadn't ridden for... Print in a long time, mm. and so I was used to being able to be a little more advanced than the average fan. Might know, mm. you know, just be able to have a link to an explanation. If someone doesn't get this, they can click on it, whatever. And obviously, you can't do that in print. <laughs> um, not to mention the fact that with, with print, you're kind of trying to reach a more general, um, sometimes a little bit older, of a, of a reader base, and so having to make sure that it's really kind of accessible. Um, for everyone is important and the, uh, I think that's a good thing. Cause it also, I think makes me a, a better writer and storyteller and kind of forces me to think more critically, like why am I including this specific number? What does it show exactly? And like, what is the story from that number? Um, and I think that forces you to be a little bit choosier with, um, you know, which stats you're pulling out, just a little more ruthless in selecting what really tells the best story there um because yeah i mean fundamentally all baseball stats think about sports stats are storytelling material and it's just a question of what can tell a story better than others um and sometimes that's the the more advanced the more technical stuff but sometimes you can get more of that story from a number that that isn't that um and yeah it, it's kind of a challenge sometimes sometimes i wish i could just like link to the explanation of of sprint speed or whatever and leave it at that um but i i do think it kind of forces me to think in more creative ways about what i'm doing and just should try to you know tie it together in a a more compelling way for everyone in a, a
0: broader audience you mentioned the the transition from web to digital of course you worked for for deadspin before coming to to si I'm just curious, Emma, I mean, you mentioned some of the the challenges of going from from digital to print, but what were some of the other adjustments that that you needed to make as a journalist in transitioning from those two entities?
1: Yeah, it's a a great question. They're obviously um, very different outlets. (laughs) But I think one of the things I appreciate about both of them is the freedom to kind of chase What I want, I mean, obviously I don't think it would surprise anyone to know SI is a little more buttoned up, um, (laughs) not as freewheeling as Deadspin was, (laughs) but it's still a place where I think they, they have a lot of trust in their writers and um, a lot of willingness to let you do weird stuff, interesting stuff to hear, whatever ideas you, you have, I think actually kind of what I was talking about earlier in terms of the, the coverage I pursued. Um, this year kind of fits that like I I saw you know I I have some other reporters I read who were kind of more constrained to writing about just the actual baseball and I just kind of had freedom to go outside of that and um, write about whatever I wanted as it related to baseball and I thought the questions off the field there were in a lot of cases more interesting than the ones on the field Um, and SI is a place that really kind of invests in that freedom and um is interested in letting writers kind of go after what they want and give you a space to kind of explore that with editors and and try to figure those questions out of what you want to do and what makes the most sense Um, and so in that sense it's actually a lot more similar to deadspin than Mm -hmm. I, i think people might realize that both of them are places that uh they care about their writers and Want to let people have space to to be themselves, even within like institutions that have pretty strong voices and pretty strong points of view, um, and so that's something that actually has made that transition um, a lot easier than I think it might seem from the outside, uh, given how different some of the content can be.
0: It's amazing because I, of course, grew up where every single week I would look forward to going to the mail and and getting that sports illustrated magazine and reading all of the, the great articles cover to cover. And now of course it's, it's certainly reduced the, on the magazine side and and more of the, the website. Do you think Emma SI still carries that same name recognition and weight given it's given in 2020 with the rise of different media outlets sort of occupying the space right now? Yeah. I mean, I think it's,
1: No secret that print media doesn't mean what it used to. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, as you said, it's now monthly instead of weekly. That's a big change. Um, I think there are lots of larger kind of cultural shifts around how we consume media and what sports media looks like and what people expect from it. But I still think that at its heart, what SI does is important. Mm -hmm. And that name means something Mm -hmm. to people. I mean, that's something that I found in reporting all sorts of different stories that, you know when you call and you're calling from sports illustrated like that's still something that means something to people i also think the physical copy still means actually quite a bit i mean with almost every story i work on i get asked to like can this be the cover can this be the cover which i don't decide and usually don't know until it's sent to the printer so even if it was the cover i wouldn't know um you know while i'm sitting there during the interview but you know that's something that guys care about that still means something to to be on the cover, to be in print. Um, and I think just the larger, the question of, of what the name means and how people care about it and what they get from it, that hasn't gone away. And I think, yes, the the print product looks different. Um, you know, it's no longer kind of the, the central focus of, of what it means to be SI. But there's still so much work in there that I admire, people working really hard to make it as, um, as strong as it can be even under kind of challenging staffing circumstances sometimes given, you know, the changes in what print media has to bring. Um, And that still kind of is something that makes me proud to be at SI
0: all the time. So can you maybe give the listeners sort of an insight into like, like the ratio between digital stories and then print stories and sort of how many are you working on at the same time?
1: Yeah, um that's something that's definitely changed this year. This is mm-hmm. the first year. It's monthly rather than biweekly. So that's you know, fewer issues. Um they're usually planned out further in advance. Um so that means less opportunities to do stuff in print, but it doesn't mean less opportunities to do big stories and try to take big swings and maybe it'll end up in the mag, maybe it won't. Um so there's not actually like a huge distinction. in like the story planning phase of like, is this for the magazine or is this for online? Um, That kind of can come later. It's just sort of a a general encouragement to, you know, to try to work on on good stuff and and take big swings and see what format it ends up being best for. But for me, I usually um, have a balance of I'll be doing two to three smaller online pieces a week. And then usually have at the same time one bigger feature that I'm working on one or two in the background and those might end up in the magazine they might not um like you know I had Tatis in this month and the month before I'd actually had two features in the magazine but I hadn't had any in the two months before that Mm -hmm. so it kind of just all balances out um and yeah just kind of a a general commitment to to trying to do interesting features um along with those sort of quicker daily-ish online pieces and, and some of those will end up in
0: magazine someone and i'm sure as well emma as well like in addition to the written stories you're probably producing digital content as well whether it's podcasts or things on on the website so i'm just curious how si sort of evolved in that space to sort of keep up with sort of the the digital times
1: yeah i mean we also do a lot of video now which is <laughs> not a strength of mine Um, still something I'm kind of slowly working on, although now I know how to to set up like my ring light and my camera and the microphone, which I don't have uh, with me right now, but like stuff that (laughs) I had no idea how to touch um, before this year, that's a a big component of it. Um, And yeah, I think just accepting that good, interesting content can come in all different forms, That like social is a a form of, of sharing your stuff, video, podcasts, like you said all of that is kind of wrapped into a a bigger question of what it means to be, um, a sports outlet or really any kind of media outlet now, and just figuring out, um, how all of that fits together. But certainly like you can't isolate one piece from the whole anymore, just because, um, all of that is necessary.
0: It's interesting because I've had, uh, several former SI uh, guests on the pod, like, um, Alexander Wolfe, Scott Price, Alan Shipnut, Jeff Perlman. And it's amazing that they worked at SI, obviously, in a different era, era where print was a lot more prevalent. But I think they definitely recognize the similar trends that like you do that in terms of chasing a story and being willing to go and really dig deep on a feature or a particular topic or trend. Do you... Are those names, or, you know, obviously Tom Verducci still works there. Like, how did they sort of inspire you to just keep going and keep motivated? Especially in a year like 2020, where it could be sometimes difficult to, you know, get up in the morning and produce that content.
1: Yeah, that's something I take very seriously. I, like you, you know, subscribed to the magazine growing up. It always meant a lot to me going to the mailbox every Thursday was such a a huge part of, um, you know, my, my child as as a sports fan and as someone interested in writing. And so all of those names, um, have meant a lot to me for a long time. And even now that, you know, I, I, I've met with, you know, people like Scott Price and Tom Verducci and worked alongside them. And that still is just kind of like mind blowing to me. (laughs) that you know, that's something that's, uh, that I've gotten to do. And so I, I take the legacy that they built at SI very seriously. And, um, yeah, I mean, my goal with everything that I, I have in the magazine or, you know, in any capacity for SI is to continue that to the extent that I can, which obviously I'm not Tom Verducci, mm. but just trying to kind of live up to the examples that they've put out and what they've been able to do to, to build SI into kind of the, the name that it is. Um, yeah, because that. that there's just so much inspiration to be taken from them. Reading old issues is one of my favorite um, ways to get ideas, to, to check out stuff that we were doing 20 or 40 or 50 years ago. Um, and so, yeah, like the, those names, I think just mean the world to SI and are at the core of, of what SI is, it, um, are those writers.
0: You mentioned that you read uh, old issues. Was there a story that, that that stands out to you or a particular topic that, that really you, you drew inspiration from?
1: Actually, this one, it's not baseball, but it's something I ended up um, writing about last year, mm-hmm. um, which is I've always kind of been interested in chess and mm-hmm. a story idea I'd had for a while was something like looking at um, how the women's chess championship mm-hmm. circuit was changing. Um just because that was something as kind of a an outsider, like someone who enjoys chess who plays casually, but like certainly is not a chess person. That um, was always kind of curious to me that there is this entirely separate um, championship circuit for women, given that, you know, chess seems like a, a game where certainly you nece- wouldn't necessarily need gender divisions, um, So at the end of 2018, I saw we had done a big story with, uh, at the time, a, uh, Fabiano Caruana, who was the highest ranking American man in a long time, um, to compete for the men's chess title. And we sent someone to, to cover it, to profile him. And I was like, okay, like if we're doing this for the men's championship, like I'm going to kind of just shoot my shot and ask my editor, can I just try to figure out something on the women's championship? And they're like, yeah, sure, you know, do whatever It was, it was December. So it was the baseball offseason. I had time. And the first thing I do when I'm doing anything like that is go to the archives and check it out because I that one I thought was kind of like a silly fruitless search like of course we haven't written about women's chess like that's not going to be something i get anything on and I was totally shocked to find that not only had we done a a huge story on it in um, the early 60s the first chess player on the cover of SI was a woman named Mm -hmm. Lisa Lane Um, there have only been two on the cover ever Bobby Fisher which obviously Mm -hmm. was Bobby Fisher and Lisa Lane and Lisa Um, predated him on that by more than a decade so I was immediately like super interested in that the story on her was just fascinating um you know she was kind of just a she was known for being young and beautiful and she like partied this was the early 60s she (laughs) was single like she didn't really care about what people thought of her and at the time women's chest was very like it was an activity for for married women who were mostly older it was like very prim and proper something mostly wealthy women pursued in the in the states and she was not any of that and so she seemed so fascinating from the si story from in 1961 so i i tried to find out what happened to her after that and she just kind of fell off the the face of the earth like the last Mm. thing i could find was someone had written a book about women's chess stars in like 2003 and they tried to call her and she hung up the phone and said like i don't talk about that anymore i was like okay like this is incredible like i (laughs) i need to to find out what happened next um and so I found her in the phone book, I called her, and when I said it was from Sports Illustrated, she still remembered Sports Illustrated, you know, calling her in 1961, Hmm. and I I went to her house, I had a really fascinating, long conversation with her, and um, wrote a really cool piece about her legacy, and um, women's chess now, and it was just so cool, Um, it's still one of my favorite things I've ever worked on and i think is just kind of the perfect example of not only the cool stuff you can find in the archives with a place whose history is as rich as uh sports Illustrated's, but also what that name can mean to people um when you pick up the phone when yeah. you call someone when they pick up the phone and they hear that um you might be a little more interested in talking so
0: no for sure that the name recognition still applies from from the 60s till 2020 and and it also speaks to the research, I mean, and, and what I think a lot of young journalists need to be able to do in order to succeed is just being able to be willing to do whatever it takes to chase a story, and and whether that's picking up the phone, digging in the archives. I think that skill of having that self initiative and self drive is so important, and and even if you know a story like chess or whether whether it's a ba- or a baseball story, I think it still applies, and I think. The more young journalists do that, the more chances I feel like they have to, to succeed in this industry.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that's something that even as what that work looks like change, it changes, even if, you know, for right now, a lot of it has to be over the phone or Zoom or whatever. Like, there's no substitute for having a conversation, um, regardless of what format it has to
0: be. Obviously, Emma, right now, I mean, for a lot of young journalists maybe listening to this, it's... Internship season and looking for different opportunities. You, of course, did many internships before getting to where you are now. And I'm just sort of curious in 2020 what what your advice would be to maybe your younger self. uh to, You know, going through this industry right now that can be very challenging. It can be frustrating, but as you've mentioned, I mean, lots of opportunities to do some really cool stuff.
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing I would let myself know um is just it's impossible to to plan this stuff out perfectly right like I remember being in college and looking at like the the LinkedIn profiles of people who were a few years older than me and like trying to plot it out point by point like okay if they did internship a and then went to internship b and then got job c like how do I replicate that I need to do this and this is the only path to follow like if these are the paths I'm seeing this is what I have to do and if I can't do it if I get rejected these places and I got rejected from a lot of them. I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm screwed and I'm never gonna get a job and that's it, Um, which is not true. Like (laughs) the industry is changing fast in a way that is unsettling and it certainly is, I mean, demoralizing, I I know how hard it is to look at a field where it feels like it's just getting smaller and smaller and opportunities are fewer and fewer and that sucks. and I, I don't want to downplay how very real, like, the the larger picture is. But when it comes to, to trying to figure that out with applying to internships and stuff, just being open to take whatever's in front of you that, that makes sense for you, that's, you know, feasible and fair financially, whatever that looks like. Being flexible and open to different things is, I think, just really important because you never know um, where it's going to lead. I actually didn't do any sports internships. Mm. I, I did have, you know, as you said, several internships, but they were all in in local news and political reporting. Um, I loved sports. I was interested in sports writing, but like, I just kind of at the, the first info session for my, my school paper, when I was a freshman, I ended up sitting in news instead of sports and I, I liked it. So I just stayed there and I, yeah, I did all my internships in that. I, that's what I did all the way through, graduation, the year after graduation, um, until I finally had a chance to, to switch into something different. And so that's something I never could have predicted when I was interning in, you know, local news at the the Charlotte Observer, my hometown Mm -hmm. in Charlotte, North Carolina, like I would never have seen this on the radar. So I think just realizing that like one internship or two internships or your first job out of college is not your fate. Like, I remember feeling that at the time that like when I graduated in, um, and it was a political internship at a, like a nonpartisan nonprofit newsroom um, covering money and politics, which was cool and I enjoyed it, but I was just like, I guess I'm doing this for the rest of my life now. Like, what does this mean? And I, that was silly. I was 22. Like, uh, there are so many opportunities to, to be flexible, to float around, to find different things. So just taking whatever you can learn from the place that you're at, whatever internship or, you know, entry job that is. I'm sure there's a lot to learn, lots of good people to learn from and just trying to soak up as much as you can. And then just, you know, taking it to wherever is next.
0: No, that's some very good advice. And I think that oftentimes I feel like young people, they, they may not be willing to maybe relocate for, for a variety of reasons, but I think, taking that yes and saying yes depending on whatever it is if you want to get any experience any experience is to me good experience and as you said you could definitely learn a lot of skills and I think also too just I find sometimes I'm I'm in a graduate journalism program myself and there may be a tendency to sort of compare what other people are doing sometimes and look your your career is measured in decades and years not just days and months and and I think that recognizing that you can have a very long career in this business and it, everyone has a different tra- trajectory and once you embrace that I think you can then find your path and and make it work for you in this industry if you work hard and have some of those intangible skills yeah I think that that's a really
1: great point um careers aren't linear I think in any field but I think especially in this one I think also you know there's no shame in in not working in journalism for a few years and coming back to it if you want Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people who have done that obviously it's it's hard to do something in a a steady capacity unfortunately in a lot of cases in in media which sucks but it's totally fine to just to do what you want to do and chase whatever that looks like for you and you know you can come back, you can try different things. Um, you know, not working in media immediately. You're not working in media for a few years. Doesn't mean that you're never going to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Last question for you, Emma. I always ask this for my guests. As you said, you're living in DC right now. What's the go-to food place right now for anyone, uh, going through the Washington DC area.
1: Right now, my biggest one and kind of throughout, um, quarantine although before that too is um the deli on the ground floor of my apartment building is <laughs> fantastic the sandwiches are amazing and it's right by a really nice park so you can get your outdoor dining in um so's your mom uh in adams morgan in dc it's truly some of the best deli sandwiches i've ever had like i'm not just saying it because it's a good quarantine option for sandwiches <laughs> and bagels it's great the park right here is lovely um but if you want something that's a little nicer, also on my block, because I, apparently my world has shrunk down to my neighborhood now, <laughs> um, there is a really cool restaurant called Mintwood Place. Right. Um, it has a lot of great, interesting dishes and um, a really incredible cheese plate, which is one of my favorites. So
0: yeah. Awesome. Well, I mean, once uh, the border reopens in, in Canada, I'll, I'll, I'll hope to uh, check those spots off the list uh, of places to try for sure. Emma Bacheleri, she is a staff writer for Sports Illustrated. Make sure to check out her stuff in both the Sports Illustrated magazine as well as online. Emma, thank you so, so much for coming on today, the Sports Chronicles podcast. Yeah, thank you so
1: much for having me. This is great.